Welcome to ICU, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Let's be friends. Hey, hey, welcome to I See You. This is episode 29, Kissing Helps My OCD. It's been a wild week. I got to do a book signing and my little girl, we just cut her hair because it's a fight every day to tame her hair. Oh good, I just got a text message from Michael White saying that he's fine with this title. That's good. Okay, that's good because I already said it. I also was on a podcast that was released this week. It's called Listen, Learn, and Love, and it's hosted by Richard Osler. He is an advocate for LGBTQs, and I had the privilege to be on his podcast. So if you want to hear more of my story, I probably go more in depth than I have on here. I'm trying to think. The podcast episode, it's actually an hour long, so it is a bit of a commitment. But I will say it was a really special experience, and I just had all the feels recording it, and I shared some pretty personal stuff about my journey to this point. So if that's something you're interested in, I would I would direct you over there to Richard Osler's podcast, Listen, Learn, and Love. I know you can find it on Apple because that's how I listen to it. It's also on SoundCloud, I know. Um, and I also think he has a website, listenlearnandlove.com. Episode 95, if you want to hear my story, I'll try and put a link to that in the show notes. This week's review is from Santa Quinn Hops, maybe. The title of the review is Life Changing, five stars. Okay, I am a total fanboy. I love that fanboy. I have been binge listening to this podcast. So much good stuff here. I listen to various topics as infertility, sexual abuse, anxiety, divorce, and others. It has given me an inside look at many things that I did not know before. It's allowed me to see people, friends and family that I love, that I know have struggled, but I do not always know how much. I can't promote this thing enough. I invite you to listen and be uplifted. In quotations, I see you. Let's be friends. Ah, you're a stud. Thank you so much for that review. That's super awesome. And my favorite part, honestly, is that you call yourself a fanboy. No one's ever said that to me. Thanks for being a fanboy of I See You. We have my guest, Michael White, on here today. Uh, He's one of my favorite people of all time. We actually went to high school together. (laughs) So that's always a good foundation of a relationship, right? We just had a blast in high school. He gave me dating advice. We talked about all the girls he liked. I just have lots of memories of us getting our groove thing on at dances together. And he's had a lot of success, actually. He was student body president in senior year of high school. Uh, He attended and graduated from BYU. Now he's a public speaker alongside Brad Wilcox and Gainolin Condi and some other well-known speakers. But his path has not always been easy. And I'm excited that he is here to share it with us and to make us laugh, like he always says. Here's Michael White. All right, I'm here with Michael White. Hi, Michael. Hey, hey, how are you doing? Good. I usually call you Mike, actually. Do you go by Michael or Mike? Whichever. So I have it where <laughs> it depends. So my, my friends call me Mike and my family members call me Michael generally, or if someone's just like really mad at me. Michael Scott. Yeah, that's my middle name too. I was telling Julie that. That is my middle name, Michael Scott, just like from The Office for those of you who watch and for those of you who don't, it means you're probably a good soul. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Michael White. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I was, so I'm from Utah. I was born and raised in a city called Mapleton, just south of Provo. Um, I'm 27 years old. I uh, just graduated from BYU. Well, not just, it was like two years ago. I graduated in public relations or uh, communications, I guess. The gist of me, I served a mission in London, England. There in London, we did uh, service volunteer work as well as uh, in London, there's quite a few atheists over there. And so we'd, we'd go over and we'd preach to them uh, regarding Jesus Christ and God. 
Um, and it was an incredible time, honestly, because a lot of those individuals, whether they be atheists or didn't really have a belief, it was amazing to watch them as a hope developed within Jesus Christ and God just in their current lives. I, uh, right now for work, I do public speaking as well as I'm an account executive at a software company just in Lehigh. Very cool. Yeah. And how do we know each other? So Julie and I, <laughs> we met when I was on student council back in 10th grade and Julie, you were 12th grade, right? Heck oh, yeah. yeah. Heck I yeah. was a senior. So I was, yeah, sophomore year and got elected, and I was the little pipsqueak who was elected, and, you know, I had no friends. That's a lie. I have That's friends. Lie. But on student council, I was just kind of a peon, and Julie was one of the big wigs. She was, she was one of the cool kids, and so naturally I became friends with her because I wanted to have cool friends. You're a dork. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that, actually. You're really cool for a lot of reasons, but you have also chose to be pretty open about your OCD, mm -hmm. which I actually did not know about in high school. I don't know if you were super open then or not, No, no but I no had one. no idea. Definitely no one at that time. And people, on. okay, so people joke about having OCD all the time, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> I'm a little OCD. I'm a, I mean, as, right? If we had a nickel for every time we've heard that, but you legitimately have been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive <laughs> disorder. What's your journey been like with it? When were you diagnosed? Just lay it on us. Yeah, totally. So yeah, so I, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder when I was 12 years old. What had been happening was, I mean, like any kid, I think when you're, you're young, you go through friend changes. Um, I was in middle school and I was going through some of those friend changes. You know, and maybe I was playing the victim. I'm sure I was actually looking back, being more dramatic than maybe what I should have been. But definitely it was, it was a very difficult time for me. But then... Some traumatic events happened in my life, which I, I don't feel is is unique to me. I feel like those who, who experience anxiety, depression, anything like that, generally there's an event or two in there that kind of triggers or pushes you over the edge in that way. And uh, that's what happened to me when I was 11 or 12 years old. It was, it was interesting because as a 12-year-old, I didn't quite know what that feeling was. Physically, I remember describing it to my mom as like, a pit in the stomach, as you guys hear, or, or a feeling of literally just like I'd been slugged in the stomach. Before I'd opened up with my parents, I didn't want to tell anyone. I remember one time I was at a, I was at a Boy Scout camp and I was feeling super, super sad as well as just kind of perfectionist kind of complex at that time. My parents came up to the Boy Scout camp because there was like a parents night and they came to visit and they kept on asking me like, are you okay, Michael? You just don't seem very happy. Are you all right? Like, and if you know my parents, my parents are, are awesome. And if you know me, I'm very loud and obnoxious and just loud in general. And so that's kind of when I opened up to them was there at that Boy Scout camp as far as how I was feeling. You know, went through OCD basically all through my teenage years um, as far as learning how to deal with it, learning what it was. For people, I think sometimes people think like, oh, I'm over that, like I've, I've overcome that. And frankly, that's not the case with me. I get OCD thoughts literally every day. I just, I feel like I know how to deal with them, you know, just as I've, I've gotten older and what I need to do. Can you tell me what did OCD look like for you as a teenager? Can you give me some examples of, for people that aren't familiar with the disorder yeah. and they only know it as a catchphrase for like something the, that it's not really. Yeah, like. no, definitely. So tell me what that's like. So basically for me, and, and I'll be totally just blunt and vulnerable with everyone here. So it's a lot of times, heck yeah, heck yeah. Um, a lot of times people think of OCD as like germs. If you've ever seen What About Bob, that's what I thought of. I literally, I, or Monk, yeah, Monk. That's actually a great example. I literally, when I got diagnosed, I'd seen What About Bob like the month before. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like, Bob. And my therapist was like, no, not quite. Like, <laughs> like, okay. A lot of people think it's like washing your hands constantly or it's things need to be perfect. Like your room cleaned up, things neatly tidy in order, etc. Mine is nothing like that. In fact, I think my parents and everyone around me would love if that was my OCD because I'm, you know, not that I'm dirty, but I kind of am dirty and my room is far from clean and I'll eat things off the ground. Like germs don't bug me at all. <laughs> But mine is in a perfection complex where I oftentimes don't feel like I live up to others' expectations. Um, when I was younger, it was in particular with my parents. Although, they, you know, my parents, it was no, they didn't do anything that, that brought that on. I just I just feel like I, I loved them so much that to let them down was absolutely terrifying to me. Um, as I got older, it kind of switched into what's called scrupulosity, which is where you are, you feel like, you know, in, in a religious standpoint that you are constantly uh, not living up to God's expectations, that you are a sinner constantly, that even the littlest things uh, are, are making you unworthy of God's love. Uh, for me, it was in a religious confession. I felt like I needed to confess to a religious leader everything that I had done, even if they were dumb things to give you an example of one of them. So like, <laughs> and I'll laugh at them, by the way, I have no issue with that. So I remember the very first girl I ever kissed, okay? And this is, yeah, very, you know, maybe she'll listen to this. Anyway, um, I've told her this anyway, so it doesn't matter. But maybe, I have like a couple names in my head. It wasn't, it wasn't the one you're thinking of. <laughs> well, no, I know it's not. Oh, yeah, 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 that was, yeah, no, different one. Yeah. So very first girl that I kissed outside of theater, I'll say that. So <laughs> I remember after kissing her, like, I felt terrible. I was like, oh my gosh, like, what have I done? Like, I Was it like a naughty kiss? No, no, like, it's just, I mean, we made out. It's basically a non-committal makeout. <laughs> you know looking back I don't regret it but um, but very first girl I kissed I think the thought that it was kind of like non-committal not that we didn't like each other it was just we weren't exclusive at that point freaked me out but then also because it was something that I had never done freaked me out like I was terrified and I remember talking with my dad about it and my dad he literally he looked at me and he's like well did you do anything that was like inappropriate and you know I just looked at him and I was like well no and he he looked at me and he's like well go kiss her again what's wrong with you and I was like oh okay and I, I remember seeing my therapist a little while after that and he he said the same thing in fact he he told me he's like I want he's like between now and the end of the year and it was I don't know maybe five months till the end of the year he's like I want you to kiss five girls between now and the end of the year and I was like I mean that petrified me by the way I was like no like I can't that's terrible he was like no I want you to do that and uh to this day it's the best therapy I've ever had <laughs> definitely so yeah no doubt no doubt. But that's kind of how mine is, if that makes sense. Just yeah. irrational perfectionism, like ridiculously irrational. Right. And so for every teenage boy, that probably wouldn't be the best advice. But for you, it yeah. was really for good me, advice for well, you. I wasn't even a teenager at that time. Like I kissed, kissed a girl in a high school musical when I was 17. Okay. Didn't feel bad about that. But then after I'd come home from this religious mission, it was I'd been home for like three or four months. And it was after that. That was, your that was first, my first like, kiss. Real, legit kiss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not as a teenage boy. That would have freaked the crap out of me as a teenage boy. Like, like I, I don't know what I would have done. done. Yeah, basically. Oh. What are some challenges that come with having OCD, would you say? Just on a day-to-day -day basis. You said you still have OCD thoughts. Yeah, That definitely. perfectionism, right? Uh-huh. So what will happen is challenges are when I get a thought in my head and whatever it is. I mean, because this, this doesn't just come out into like religious perfectionism. It comes out into a few other ways as well. Challenges that can come with it are I examine a thought in my head and then 
then once I've determined or thought of it, you know, if it's irrational, like let's say kissing a girl and thinking that that's bad, even though it's not, I'll think about it and I'll finally determine it's not, you know, that's, that's, I'm just fine. That's not wrong. But then what will happen is then I'll start looking at that thought again from a completely new angle thinking, okay, well, what if I did this or what if I did that? It's funny. I mean, those, those words, what if, I mean, I, I, one time, same therapist, he told me I was, I was seeing him and I was explaining everything to him, how he was feeling. And he said, you need to stop right there. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, listen to how you start every sentence. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you're starting every sentence with the words, what if, and he said, Mike, those words, what if, are, they're like the mentally ill F word. He's like, those words are worse than the F word itself to you. And he's like, I'm not saying that the F word isn't bad, okay, just to clarify that. But he is saying that the words, what if, are 10 times more debilitating to me than, you know, the F word ever would be. And it's because the words, what if, you know, whether it be literally the words, what if, or in some other synopsis way, then, or whatever that word is, <laughs> you know, it's a similar way. Yeah. Those words are what negatively predicts the future. And it's funny as I, as I talk with people, or as I go around and speak with groups about dealing with anxiety and depression and OCD, every person I've talked with somehow says, what if about their thoughts? You know, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if I did this? What if I did that? Yep. That's kind of what I notice as far as day to day. And so how I deal with it as far as day to day is I literally just say, screw it. Like, I'm not kidding. Yeah. As, as weird as that sounds all, I'll say the thought out loud. To so be like, what if, da 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 da. Yeah, what so if I for, did this wrong. So, for example, like, what if I fail? So, what people will do is they'll say, what if I failed this history test? And then a lot of times in school, they'll negatively connect the dots. Well, if I fail it, I'm not gonna get my major, not gonna get my job, I'm not gonna get the dream home, and I'll be a hobo. All from failing your history test. Right. Right? Yeah. And which is ridiculous. Like that's, that's totally distorted thought. Yeah. So when that happens is I'll say it out loud. Like what if I fail my tests? And if I say that out loud, I, I literally say it out loud. I realize how ridiculous it is. And I just say, screw it. Like if I fail it, I fail it. And generally I you found stop the thought there. I do. Yeah. I just leave it at that. And I just say, if I fail it, I fail it. And, and I found, you know, it's just like, you know, that, that therapist who told me to go kiss five more girls, it's just an exposure therapy that if I realize that the worst of the worst is going to happen and I'm still okay it's gonna be okay. Well, and it's interesting, these like mental tricks that work for us because, so growing up with a father that had suicide ideations and those kind of things, that was like my biggest fear. So when I started struggling, to me, my only sample pool was that one person I knew that was mentally ill. And so I had never met someone that struggled with depression or anxiety or OCD, these mental illnesses that had found something that worked really well for them. So my thoughts would always be like, what if I end up taking my life? That was that was like so anxiety triggering. And I, I think about it all the time. I, I think as a kid, I became obsessed with it when I learned that about my dad. It was like this weird obsession, even as a child. And so as an adult, it became really natural to have those thoughts come in a lot because it was so tied to depression and anxiety for me. That is what depression and anxiety equaled. That's, That's what, what I thought people did. Yeah, because that was my one, because that one person in my life I knew, they almost did that many times. Anyways, but I remember my thing, it wasn't screw it, but it was, I would like see the thought and I pictured having a gun, I don't know, like a 22 rifle or something and blowing it almost like Mario with his fire blasters yeah. and watching it explode. We'll say a bazooka because a 22 definitely <laughs> okay. would not do that. So we'll say bazooka. But I just, just watching things explode. I used to tell my thoughts to go back to hell. I would yeah, literally definitely. tell them that. 
go back where you came from. We forget about these resources. It's okay to have tricks in your head of things that work. Oh, definitely. Saying And saying it out loud, I'm not kidding. I do it every day. Because when you say it out loud, you Plus realize how stupid it is. Yeah, really. Like, I don't know why, but when you say it out loud, it's almost like it leaves the... The, the trick of the mind, and when it becomes verbal, you're kind of like, yeah, that is ridiculous. And I laugh at it, that's the other thing I laugh. So I, I remember as a kid hearing a, a story about these monkey traps that they'd have in Africa. And you can, you can totally go on YouTube this, by the way, how these African hunters would trap these monkeys. And what they do is they go to these, these mounds and they burrow into the mound. And at the uh, end of it, what they do in the middle of this mound, they put some food and kind of hollow it out. And this, this little burrow into the mound, it would be just just big enough for the monkey's arm to fit in. And then at the end, when the monkey, they would grab the food and make a fist around the food. But the thing is, is then because they had a fist, it wasn't big enough to pull out of the actual tunnel or the burrow into that mound. And so the monkey would be trapped there. They would do everything to literally get out of it, but they couldn't. And it's just, it's funny because all they would have to do is literally just let go of the food and pull their arm out. So then what would happen is these hunters would come along and literally they just take the monkeys and literally just pull the arm That's right crazy. out of it. And yeah. And I think we do that a lot of times where like we have this thought or this idea and we grab onto it and we just don't let go. Whether it be, you know, if we say like, so some, some anxieties that I've heard like mine as far as a perfection complex, other ones where it's. I have to have, you know, numbers correctly or, or things neat and tidy, germs, you know, washing my hands all the time. Maybe even it's, I, I had a friend who she was OCD over about the safety of her kids to an extreme, right? Mm -hmm. And they held on to it, not that it's bad, but they held on to it so tight that it literally would just debilitate them. But yet more often than not, like you're saying, like, you just let go. You just need to let go of it and be comfortable that things will be okay. Yeah, and and I think it takes letting it go over and over again. Hundred percent. It's almost like it's almost like with Christ, we want to lay things at His feet, and I, I'm getting a lot better. But I used to have my my stuff, and it's like I'd hand it to Him, and then I'd take it back and hand it to Him back. No, 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 just kidding. I don't trust you. Actually, I'm going to cling to this. And I think it takes practice of letting that go and just giving it over and be like, I don't need to worry about that. Yeah, I'm giving oh, that to you. Hundred percent. And to me, that's that's part of the atonement, isn't it? I mean, the atonement isn't just a one fix all. I mean, the, the atonement was an act, but I mean, Jesus Christ himself, you know, is the one who did it. Just like you said, I mean, he's always there and that it's consistency and learning to trust him with that. Daily bread. I always think about that. Like yeah. daily bread, daily. There have been people in your life that have showed you compassion or connected with you that have made dealing with your OCD easier. Yeah, definitely. And the, the best decision I ever made was talk to my parents about it easily. Which is cool decision. that you had the, that your parents had created an atmosphere where you felt comfortable talking about it at an early age. Uh -huh. Like that honestly probably saved your life in oh, some ways. Oh, de definitely. 100%. First off, the fact that they had the perception to ask me about it just like are you okay etc just to clarify you struggled with depression yeah I, yeah when I was younger I haven't had depression since teenage years for sure but yeah and so when they asked me you know like I said to have the perception to talk to me but then to have to have almost like that feeling of safety to where I feel like felt like I could confide in them definitely the biggest thing so my parents number one number two a therapist by far is as well with that I have a lot of people I talk to and, and who are religious and a lot of times they'll they'll think like well I can just pray to God or pray to Jesus and they'll take it away and, and don't get me wrong I 100 
100% believe that. But I, I more so believe that Jesus, that he put people on this earth as well as means, such as medication, such as a therapist who you click well with, etc. And that's how we access his atonement. You know, you can't just pray it away. You know, like I said, I don't believe it'll ever go away from me. I think I'll have this till I'm dead. Same. But but yeah, but the people like a therapist or medication, like I know how to deal with this. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Well, and I feel like I felt the spirit directing me in those areas of my life, in the in the medication I've used and in my therapy. And so that shows to me, I'm like, man, God is big enough for all of this. Yeah. It also reminds me of an analogy of the guy drowning with the boat. You know that analogy? Yeah. Where this oh, yeah. guy drowning and the boat comes by. He's like, no, I'm praying. God will save me. It's cool. And another boat. No, God will save me. And then he dies. Mm -hmm. And God's like, I sent you two boats. I think you can feel a lot of inspiration for these, these resources that God has blessed us with. So how have your experiences given you empathy for others who feel different because of a challenge they have? Yeah, definitely. So number one, I, I found that as I've been more open about it, and I, I was telling Julie, I'm a pretty confident individual. You know, if people judge me on this, I just don't care. Frankly, I really don't. But as I become more open, I found that people become way more open with me. And it's because it creates that safety. Like what I was talking about with my parents, my mom has had anxiety. And, and when she told me that, I immediately did not feel judged by her because I knew that she would understand me. Um, and so I could open up to her. And I found it's the exact same thing that when I talk with people and when I open up to them, they always, not, well, not always, they often open up to me just so that that way they don't feel like, you know, they're, they're a freak. I mean, the first thing that OCD or anxiety or depression does is it takes away hope. I mean, that's why people suicide, right? If tomorrow's, if tomorrow's darker than today, what's the point? Well, and it can make you feel, for me at least, like the biggest lie with depression, it's like, not only am I never going to be happy again, but like, I actually was never happy. Yeah. I don't think uh -huh. it all feels like a lie. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, definitely. And, and it, it takes that hope away. And I think when I, you talk with people who have this, like that empathy that we're talking about, it gives you hope. Like, oh yeah, like he has a PhD and he's successful. This person's a mom of three kids and she's doing great. Like she was able to get over it. Like this will pass. And I can just promise all of you guys, you know, who's listening, it really, really will. If this is something that you're going through now or at some point you'll be affected with, it really does pass. It does pass. If there's someone listening, you kind of were getting into this, but if there's someone listening that's struggling because they feel different for any reason, mm -hmm. we have listeners, I've gotten messages from people with so many different challenges that are so different from each other. But what ties us all together is we come here as a place of listening of we believe we all need compassion and connection. Mm -hmm. So if someone's feeling different, what kind of advice would you give them? The embrace it. That's what's so incredible about this. Like the thing that I love about my OCD, I people ask me, they're like, do you wish that it could go away? And I'm not gonna say that I could wish I could go into like when it gets into the dark moments of it, but I would never wish that it was gone because my OCD to me is like my superpower. And it's gonna sound really dumb and you guys can totally judge me for this and that's okay. He doesn't care because he's confident. That's right. <laughs> so bring it at me. Come on, come at me, bro. Or sis, whichever. <laughs> but it's to me, it's it's a superpower. In, this is in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, okay? And this is Paul and he's talking about, in the Bible, yeah. He's talking about a thorn in the flesh and he says, and lest I be exalted above measure through abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted exalted above measure. Or in other words, to translate that into normal English, he's saying like, once I had this crazy thorn in the flesh, not literally, but like a trial in my life so that I could stay humble. So that way I didn't exalt myself. 
And then he says, for this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. In other words, he prayed to God over and over again to take it away. The Lord's reply is, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that to me is like the epitome of my OCD. 100% the most spiritual moments in my life have been when I am at the darkest moments in my life. Um, Just because that's, you know, I, I just, I see, I just see that over and over again. It never, ever, ever has left me on that, that when those darkest times are there, sometimes it feels like, you know, I pray three times like Paul and I'm praying to a brick wall, but like the light always shines through. But then in addition, I look at that for when I am weak, then I am strong. I look at how OCD has changed me. It makes me a better worker. I've I've been able to channel it to where, you know, in, in my work ethic, instead of being obsessed about being perfect, I can be obsessed about working harder than everyone else. I can be obsessed about uh, uh, the relationships in my life and the people who I love in my life and be obsessed over that. Your wife's going to love it. And so, <laughs> she's, really <laughs> she's like, stop it. Anyway, so, <laughs> but I literally have been able to find it to where I can channel my obsessions into things that actually matter and are not destructive. And so for those of you, like what you were saying, I, I just say embrace it and, and find it. Because honestly, as dark as it is, it's it's a faith opportunity. It really is just a faith opportunity. I feel the same way. When I think about that, those moments from hell, it's pretty hard to say, I'm so grateful for that moment. I don't know if I'm quite there, but it's completely changed who I am. And it's, you know, I always say like, I didn't want to be dependent on medication. I didn't want to be dependent on anything. I am 100% dependent on Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. like every day of my life. And it's kind of a really peaceful, amazing life. Heck yeah. It's like one eye to the glory of God. I feel like I can't afford to not, I can't be missing my scriptures all the time. I can't be not talking to my heavenly father. I I can't afford to not be exercising, taking care of my body in other ways. But it's kind of an amazing life to live my life that way and to, to feel connected to God that, yeah, it's like channeling a superpower. No, it totally, well, it totally is. And like what you're saying, the nice thing about that, like 100% on Jesus Christ is like circumstances change your job. You're going to lose your job. People are going to die. You're going to develop a chronic illness. I don't care what it is. Your looks, you're going to get older. That's right. Does. For me, you're going to get fat. I gained 10 pounds last month. That's <laughs> no joke. It's a great life. Anyway, um, like it's going to change. Life is always changing. But the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ is he never changes. Like he's always there and you can always find that hope through that. Like what you're saying. When we talk about seeing someone on this podcast, it's called I see you, right? Right. And seeing someone is like being present with them, sitting in their pain with them, sitting in their victory with them, truly seeing someone where we live in a really disconnected like being culture, with the, being yeah. present with someone. Perfect. So we see people struggling and a lot of times our initial reaction is it's, it's uncomfortable sometimes mm-hmm. to like get up in someone's grill when they're, when they're feeling that way. Mm-hmm. But what we need, we need to be touching each other's shoulders. We need to be looking people in the eye. We need to be connecting with people. So what are some ways to see someone who has this struggle? Okay, perfect. As far as with that, what I would say is, is number one, like just if, you know, literally just let them rant. And believe me, people with mental illness, anxiety, depression, they can rant. <laughs> you know, I'm sure just after listening to me, you guys are like, yeah, they can. <laughs> so They're like, oh, I don't have OCD actually. <laughs> <laughs> just, just let them rant. You don't need to fix their problems because they don't need that. Don't get me wrong, like their problems will be fixed, but what they need is hope. And so just let them, let them go. Let them know that you were there for them. Give them a shoulder to cry on. 
and I think that's the biggest thing. The second thing that you can do is, uh, is let them know that you are looking out for their well-being. You know, whether it be someone who's suicidal, whether it be someone who, like I said, is, is anxiety or depression, let them know that, hey, you know, I am here for you. If you ever need anything, and I really mean this, like, just reach out. And, and actually hold, hold to your word on that. Like, actually really hold to your word. I mean, that's, that's what made the biggest difference for me. I think sometimes people will get upset if it means like, oh, well, I think you should go talk to your parents or you should go talk to a therapist or you should get on medication. I think it also means being upfront with them. And even though they may not want to hear that when the time comes, like I said, listen to them, let them rant, etc. But if, if they need to hear something like, you know, maybe it's smart to see a therapist or maybe, you know, it might be smart to go and think about getting medication or whatnot. You know, be, be honest enough with them in a tactful way that you're okay with doing that. Because in the long run, even though they may be offended at first, they will thank you. I want to just ask one follow-up question. Go ahead. What would you say to people, they've never struggled with mental illness before, mm -hmm. they question, is this real? I'm not quite connecting with it. What would you say? Yeah, I don't blame them. I would, I would feel the same I, way. I, I would say I felt the same way before. Yeah. I, I did. I do feel like I had compassion for my dad, but it's, it's just this whole other reality that does until you're in it. It's not really real. No. Oh, definitely not. Like 100% not. I, as far as those people, first off, you're lucky. Second off, it's going to happen. Maybe not to you, but I guarantee to someone who is super close. Yeah, I guarantee it. You know, whether you can understand it or not, like I said, just be understanding in that these people are trying for the most part. And just, like I said, just be there for them. And so it's going to happen. Just be there for them. Yeah. And that it's their reality. Uh -huh, I always think exactly. about that with people that are struggling, whether I agree with their decisions or anything, you know, like you can, you can blame people for why they're in their struggles all day long if you want. But the, at the end of the day, it is their reality, what they're feeling. And we can all have compassion for that. 100%. 100%. Okay. You're a stud. Thanks for being on the podcast. Dude, heck yeah. Thanks. Dude, this guy's single. I'm for real. But here's the thing. He has to marry someone really, really cool. And we all know that he's kissed girls before. So if that bothers you, just remember, it was all in the name of therapy. It's about time to do a storybook episode. I'm feeling the itch. So that's going to be coming your way in the next week or two. I do a storybook series where I highlight two storybooks. Usually I'll do it with a friend. I highlight two storybooks that teach compassion and connection and that we can learn from as adults. Next week's episode, I have about six billion things I want to talk about for next week's episode. So those are all just kind of buzzing around in my head. We'll see where that lands. Don't worry about it, but I should probably worry about it because it's next week. Rate and review the podcast. That's super helpful to me. And if you want to support the podcast, please go to www.icupodcast.com and click on support the podcast. There's a place you can donate to the podcast to cover the website fees and a place where you can buy cute apparel. Thanks guys for all your support. I love you. My name is Julie Lee and I see you 